So when you hear the word peace, what images come to your mind? Maybe you get like 1970s hippies with swirlies and flowers and peace signs. Well, I'm not that old, so I don't think that. I don't know if maybe you picture like a, a serene, like maybe like a still lake, you know, like a little house off in the distance or something just that seems peaceful. So like what comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? What about the word rest? What, what thoughts or feelings come to your mind when you think of resting? Maybe if you have small children, you think, when my kids are taking a nap or when my kids go to bed at night, then I can finally get some rest or I can get some peace when my kids go to bed. I, I don't know what images or what thoughts come to your mind, but I do know this, that we are in desperate need for peace and for rest. We're living in very anxious times and I don't think that's a stretch to say that anxiety abounds today in our world. I mean, there's all this fear and all of this frustration over just, or even just being afraid of getting sick because there's a virus that's about. Or there's fear of a loved one that will get sick. And so you're afraid, not even for you, but you're afraid that if, if you get sick, then you can infect someone that is maybe older or that is struggling with their health. And so you're afraid of infecting those that you love. Maybe you're, you're afraid that school won't start next month. And maybe the parents are afraid that school won't start next month more than the kids. The kids are like, it's been summer since March. This is amazing. I don't know what fears or anxieties you're going through today. There's been financial hardship with this season. Man, it's just our country being transformed and going through so much upheaval. And I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on politically. The bottom line is that there is upheaval and division, and it's painful to watch. It's, it's this world that we're in. I haven't even talked about maybe your own personal struggles, your own, maybe your marriage struggles, or your own temptations, or what just you battle with every single day, day in and day out. Human beings have been created for peace. We need it, and we crave it. Our hearts desire peace, and maybe you don't even recognize it, and maybe you haven't thought about it that way, and like, I haven't thought about like craving peace, but our hearts do. And you might not even realize it, but every single time that you abuse alcohol, you're looking for peace. Every time that you go online and you're surfing for pornography, you're looking for peace. Every time that you look to your work to give you a sense of satisfaction or purpose or meaning, and you're workaholic, you're looking for peace. When you're not married and what you want so bad and you're obsessed with being married, what your soul is actually craving is peace. Whether you realize it or not, so often when we turn to things of this world, whether it's more possessions or more status or ladder climbing at work, whatever it is, whatever we give our hearts to, and oftentimes when it's, it's not healthy for us, what our hearts are desiring and desperately needing is peace. And we don't even realize what we're looking for. And we're looking for all of these things. And it's like dumpster diving, going into the garbage bin of life and trying to find a good meal. You're hungry, but you're not going to find it there. Your, your soul is so thirsty for peace, but you will not find it with work or porn or people or career or possessions or vacations or whatever it is that you think that you're looking for, you're not going to find it there. Because the Bible describes Jesus as the prince of peace, and only he can bring it. So if your soul today is in turmoil, then there is good news 
and his name is Jesus. And I praise God who is telling a story. And in this series, we've been looking at this story that God has been telling. The Bible is not random. I know there are people that think that the Bible is just like this random collection of old teachings from Hebrew or Greek writings, and they're just really cool historical stories or just good stories to live by. But that's not true. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It is inerrant and it is infallible, so it has no error. And it is spoken by the word, the mouth of God as he inspired the men to write it. And what we have is the exact words of God as he wanted them to be. And we have reliable English translations so we can read this with confidence that this is God speaking to his people of all time. And the Bible is not random, nor is it disconnected. It is one story. It is one epic narrative. It is telling the story of God's eternal purpose in creation. And then with our fall, with redemption through Messiah, through Jesus. And then what is happening is we are moving towards the end of all time in the consummation of all things. History has a purpose. It is linear and it is moving somewhere and it is moving to the appointed end of a resurrected people worshiping the resurrected Messiah forever. This is the point of your life. It is the point of our existence of the Bible. It is one story. And we've been learning how the Bible storyline is summarized in four words. And it's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This is the Bible story. It begins with creation. We've looked at that. And then it continues with the fall. It explains why the world is so messed up. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And the rest of the Bible is about redemption, God restoring the world back to its original purpose. And one day we will all be living, those of us that trust Jesus, on the new earth with the completion, the consummation of his plan. So these four words are very important of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And oftentimes, what this is described, it's called biblical theology. It is looking at the various different themes in the Bible that hold the Bible together into just one story. And so identifying the primary themes that begin in the Garden of Eden and in Genesis and following that thread all through the Old Testament how it points to fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and then it will continue to the end of time with the end when we're all resurrected on the new earth. And so these themes that connect from garden to new earth, from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, following and tracking these, these threads is oftentimes called biblical theology. And so we've been studying that the last several weeks. And these individual themes I'm calling threads create one tapestry, which is the stunning word of God. There is nothing like it under the sun. This book that we have in our hands that people have died to translate and to smuggle into closed countries, this book here is life, and we are so privileged to have it. And, and, and my prayer has been that we would be in awe of who God is as we get a glimpse of his glory through his word. And may we be a people that worship God as we understand, as we see the Bible as a interwoven masterpiece. And so today we're looking at a new thread in the story of redemption, and the thread is peace. How, how this is a theme that, that connects the Bible from cover to cover. So we're going to see how God wants to be a people of peace. Now, in the Bible, the word for peace is shalom. So that's the Hebrew word for peace. And so if you've heard the word shalom, then that's, that's what the word is. It means peace. Now, in the Bible, the, the word shalom or peace is not simplistic. It is a remarkable word. It's a really awe-inspiring word, and it can be really deep. 
And so it's, it's a rich word that's full of meaning and is multidimensional and multi-layered. There's no single English word that even begins to capture what shalom describes. And even though the word peace is a direct translation, the, the word peace, as we think of it, doesn't come anywhere near to capturing the richness of this word. And so we're going to spend our time this morning on examining and just pondering what it means. And then may God be at work in our hearts and create peace in us. So as we jump in to consider God's peace, let's just pray in this moment and just ask the Spirit to bring us His peace. Oh, Father in heaven, We need you. We are a broken people. We're filled with anxieties and fears and insecurities and doubts. And in our humanity, in our, our brokenness, we just approach you with a hunger for your peace. We need you. If we have you, we have everything. So we just ask that your spirit will be so heavy on us this morning as we considered your peace and what this means and the implications for this, that, that we would just be spurned to be in all of you and to worship you and to live on fire for you. May we be a people of shalom. Today as we as we consider your word and what it has to speak to us, may you speak to us today. And may we not leave this place the same. May we leave this place transformed with hearts full of peace, no matter the circumstances. And so we're asking for your help, for your blessing, for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So shalom might mean peace, but the, uh, let me help you understand what it really means. And I'm going to ask three questions as we work through in, in, in the Bible about what peace means from cover to cover. And so the first question is, what is shalom in the Bible? So what exactly is shalom? So it, again, it means more than just like the end of a war. Like we'll talk about like peace time, like, oh, we have peace, but that's not what this means. And it, it doesn't mean inner peace, the way our Far East Buddhist friends might talk about peace. Like, no, that's not what shalom means. Shalom means a complete well-being. So like a holistic, physical, mental, social, and like spiritual peace. So again, holistic, a totality of physical, mental, social, spiritual Peace. So shalom also refers to a universal human flourishing. So it captures this essence of wanting to see humanity just be healthy and well and flourish. So at its most basic meaning, shalom means wholeness. So as in undivided or as in unbroken or whole. So the word integrity has to do with not having cracks, but being whole. And, and so shalom refers to a state of wholeness, of holiness, of, of integrity. But, and so the word whole is a really good word that begins to capture the meaning. The word shalom also includes delight. And so this range of meaning includes delights like in God's creation. So being, being grateful for the gifts that God gives to us includes shalom. It means delights also in God's purpose. And so recognizing our purpose as created image bearers of God, how we exist to reflect God's glory. And that brings us shalom. There's a sense of joy and peace that comes with that deep inside Shalom also refers to this being delighting, not just in God's creation or in God's purpose, but delighting in God himself. It's enjoying the very presence of God, walking with him and enjoying him with your eyes of faith, seeing him. 
And so think of it this way. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Not the way our world is today, but the way things ought to be. The peace. So God's original purpose can be wrapped up in this one word, shalom. So let me try to help you get your mind around it in like more practically three descriptions of this. Shalom is peace, but specifically peace with God. So having harmony with God. And by the way, just that we're clear, I'm not talking about the God of your own imagination. I'm not talking about the God that you want him to be or that, that you create out of just your own thoughts or what pop culture says. I'm talking about the way that he is revealed in the Bible, the way God has revealed himself. That God, the one true God from the Bible, him, that guy, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the end of all things, who holds all things together, who is holy and merciful, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we worship, him, having harmony with a God who is holy. So it refers to a harmony with the holiness of God. But it's also, so peace with God, but it's also peace with others. So shalom refers to having peace with other human beings, not being at war or having anxiety towards others or animosity or brokenness or holding grudges or ignoring other people or shutting people out that have hurt you or gossip or slander or abuse or divorce. All of these things, shalom means that one day God's going to bring peace and it'll be peace with others. And we can have a taste of that right now, of being at peace with other human beings. Shalom also means having peace with yourself, or you could say within yourself. Because shalom is not just peace outwardly towards God and towards others. So it is. It's vertical peace and horizontal peace with God and others, but it's also inward, internal. It's having peace with your Self, having a soul that is not broken or fractured. It's a soul that is in harmony. So like I can sing. So now that we're doing this live stream thing, I'm like, make sure you mute my mic when we're singing. Because I don't want our brothers and sisters at home watching on their screen having to hear my voice singing. Like that's not going to bless anyone's soul. And it happened three weeks ago. <laughs> Thankfully, we weren't live yet. That was our practice run before we went live a week later. And I was so, so thankful that we did that practice week because it would have just been cringy the whole time. My voice does not produce harmony. It produces dissonance. <laughs> There's a difference between the two. And we're designed to have harmony within our own soul, but oftentimes we don't have harmony. We have dissonance in our soul, a soul dissonance where you believe one thing, you claim one thing, but you live another. And it's inconsistent. It's incongruent, and it creates anxiety and guilt in all kinds of ways. You try to medicate to numb that pain. That is not having shalom within yourself. That is not having peace. When your soul is at war with what you truly believe when you claim, and then when you're alone in your private life, it's just a whole different ballgame. Um, that is not having a soul that has harmony within itself and who God has made you to be. You see, we have a God that's always at peace. He's always at rest. God is never anxious. God is never worried. God is never frustrated. Like, who can frustrate God's plans? And the enemy tries, and he's trying now hard, and yet he's not going to have the victory because no one and nothing can thwart the sovereign purposes of God. Nothing can thwart God. God never gets frustrated 
or anxious or worried. He is always at peace, always at rest as he is working. And we are called to reflect the character of God. This is what we're image bears. This is what we're about. And so when we are anxious or frustrated or worried, that says something. Why are you frustrated? Probably because things aren't going your way. Probably because the things that you want aren't happening. And I don't know why they're not happening. I'm not sovereign. I'm not God. But I do know this. He loves you and he is in control. And so you have to learn to rest in his good hand and not get frustrated or anxious or worried. But trust him who's got this. So when we worry and panic and all that, it's just showing that we're not resting. We're not at peace with God, with others, or within ourselves. So let's look at this theme of shalom beginning in Genesis. Since this is kind of series is about looking at it from cover to cover. So Genesis chapter 1, you see shalom beginning in the Bible. Genesis 1, 28, it says, And God blessed them, this is Adam and Eve when he created them, and God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Sorry, I just hit your drum, Matt. I love you, bro, but there's not a lot of space up here. <laughs> um, so back to Genesis 1. So God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, and he says, To subdue the earth. And so God, it says that he begins with blessing Adam and Eve. And so he gives them his word. He gives them this purpose of displaying his glory globally by having children and teaching them God's ways and covering the earth with people that reflect God's image. So they have this, this purpose, this God's word, and they have God's blessing. And Genesis 3, verse 8, it's not on the screens, but you can look it up later. It describes God walking with them in the garden of Eden. So they had their peace with God, peace with God's purpose, peace with God himself in the garden of Eden. Genesis 2.25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is a whole sermon in and of itself. We don't have time to get into it today, but that is a picture of what your marriage should be. Naked and not ashamed. Complete transparency. Yes, physically, but emotionally naked and transparent. In every way, we expose ourselves and we are honest with our spouse, and we do it because there's trust. There's a sweet, loving trust where I know that I can be completely naked with my wife, not just physically, but in every way. No hidden accounts, no deleted internet history, no nothing hidden, no nothing walled off emotionally, kept away from your husband or your wife, nothing. Completely bare, stripped naked, saying, here I am, all of my flaws, my brokenness, my fears, my struggles, this is who I am, and I know that you love me. And we're going to walk this together, and God is going to be glorified in this. This is a picture of marriage naked with no shame, no neglect, no abuse, no harsh words, just loving and esteeming each other. Husbands loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands. And so this is a picture of the first two human beings having peace with each other. With more humans to come and more of God's shalom to be spread. Peace with God, walking with him, peace with others. And then you also see again with this picture of God walking with, with Adam and with Adam fulfilling his calling. Adam, it describes in Genesis 2, you see him at work naming the animals, living out his purpose and his calling. And you see this, this sense of peace with who he is, peace within himself. And so you're seeing all of Shalom already working in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Which is why Genesis 2 also introduces the concept of rest. 
because rest and peace are very closely connected in the Bible. On the seventh day, God rested. Now, God wasn't tired. He is infinite. He wasn't tired. He doesn't get tired like us. But he rested to set a pattern that we need rest, that we need to be dependent on God. And we can't go through life thinking, I got this, bro. No, you don't. And, and the faster that you acknowledge, no, you don't got this, the better off you're going to be. We're dependent on God and we're dependent on others. And so you're seeing shalom already working in the garden. And so shalom, this is important. It's not the absence of something. This is important. A lot of times we think of peace as in the absence of. So, for example, the absence of war. Oh, that's peace. Or the absence of busyness. Oh, I cannot be at peace. The absence of a virus. If we can just get a vaccine, if we can just inoculate ourselves and make ourselves perfectly safe and that there's no more threat and there's no more anxiety, we think to ourselves that we can just eradicate COVID-19, then we can have peace. Let me give you some information. We have lots of viruses that have been around for decades that have no vaccine. Should I list them for you? There's so many of them. Herpes, to name one. No vaccine. I know this. I get cold sores. I hate them. Like on my mouth. That's it. <laughs> it's a virus. Hey, I'm keeping it real. That's who we are, right? <laughs> There's no cure for it. There's no vaccine. I have to use a Brevo whenever I have this white stuff on my lip. And so if you ever see that, I'm sorry. I'm human. I'm I'm infected by the fall, and there are viruses, and I have it in my bloodstream, and it flares up every now and then, and I get a cold sore. Deal with it. There's other much more serious ones, like HIV. No vaccine. That's been around for decades that we have been doing research, and we're nowhere near a vaccine for it. There are so many viruses that we don't have a vaccine, and like never will have a vaccine for them. And there's no guarantees of a vaccine for COVID-19. We're not guaranteed. There's flu shots, and yet people get the flu every single winter. It's a reality, like we talked about a few weeks ago. The world is broken. The world is fallen. There are viruses. There will always be viruses. Until Jesus returns and he defeats the enemy, then there will be no more bacteria No more viruses, no more sickness, no more death. But we're not in heaven. So we need to just wake up and just realize that we are in a broken world and we have to live our lives and learn to live with confidence and with a sense of peace, even in the anxiety, even when there's a pandemic. We cannot live fearful with no peace just because there's a virus. Welcome to humanity. It's corrupted. Look at Genesis 3. We we, we covered that. It was a long sermon. I don't have to rehash that. If you're curious, go online and listen to it. It's an hour long. It's awesome. It actually is. I've been going longer recently. I don't usually preach this long, but this series is is kind of unique. Um, But if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But I just want to share the word with you. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is not the absence of fear. Peace, this is for maybe young moms with small children, peace is not the absence of being annoyed by your children. We think to ourselves, if I can just remove this annoyance, remove this person, remove this situation, this problem, whatever, all of a sudden, oh, I'll have peace. No, you won't. No, because peace is not the absence of anything. Peace is the presence of God. Peace is not the absence of anything. It's the presence of God. This is the point. You can have shalom no matter the circumstances, 
because you can have your soul at rest in a God who is sovereign and good and wise, and he proved it with his son's death and resurrection. We have hope. We're a people of shalom, no matter what's going on around us. So that's question number one. What is shalom? It's the way things ought to be whole and perfect and God-glorifying. Question number two, why is shalom lost today? Why? Why is shalom lost? Well, let's continue in the storyline. Now, we know in the beginning it was because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And we've explored two themes. It's kind of funny, these two themes. I had our associate pastor Colton preach these, not on purpose, it just happened that way, but covenant and law. So he's already covered those in this series. And so we looked at covenant and how God has pledged himself with blood to his people, that we are a blood-bought people. And the whole Bible shows how we are the ones that have broken the covenant, not God. We are the ones that have violated the relationship. And so we have brought the curses upon ourselves. Now, we've also seen how Jesus took those curses on the cross and defeated them. Yes, that's true, but we're not glorified yet. And so because we have violated the covenant, we're living in a broken world. So shalom is lost. Also, we talked about law last week. God gave his people his commands. The law was not first given in in Exodus 20. It was given in Genesis 2 at creation. God gave Adam his commands. He said, do this. He said, take care of the animals. He said to have dominion, to multiply. He gave him commands. He told him, don't eat of this tree. He gave him his word. He gave him his commands very early on in creation. And then, of course, later, God gives more commands to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, such as uh, circumcision and so forth. We don't have time. I'm going kind of fast here. Fast forwarding. He then later in Exodus 20, yes, God's people freed from slavery. He gives them his law. It's more comprehensive, but it's still his commands that he's been giving to them the whole time going back to Adam. So God has been giving his commands to his people from the very beginning. Why? Why did God give us commands? Why does he give us his law? It reveals his character. The law reveals the very character that is holy reveals God's holy law. And so it's not as though God is holy because he keeps the law. No, no. The law is holy because it reflects the character of God. And so he has revealed who he is, and it also exposes our inability to keep the law, and then we fall short. But it's in the law itself that God revealed the remedy. Because in the law, you had sacrifices. You had bloodshed, which points to Jesus, who fulfilled the law, died for us, and takes away the sin of the world. We have broken the covenant. We have broken the law. We are in a broken world for having violated the covenant and the commands of God. But understand what our father Adam did in the garden. He committed high treason. This was a rebellion. This was a coup to to overthrow the king and take over the kingdom to be God. And so what he committed is is punishable by death. And it's not like God didn't tell him. God said, on the day they eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And he did. Adam died spiritually and he began to to degenerate, so to die physically. That process began when he disobeyed, tried to overthrow God. And we have inherited Adam's evil, rebellious heart. Every one of us is born into sin. We are born sinners, and we need the grace of God. We cannot save ourselves. It's God who graciously sent his son, and then he sends his spirit to open our eyes and to regenerate this dead heart of ours to bring us from death to life so that we can then respond with faith. God takes the initiative. We cannot. 
we're dead in our sins. It is God who takes the initiative. And we graciously respond, and we respond with gratitude for eternity. You see, Adam was the head of humanity, and he failed. And so now we have his same nature. And like our father, we're rebels to ourselves. And so what sin does without the work of God's redemption, sin on its own disrupts shalom. So sin destroys shalom. We have lost peace. We have lost rest. Just look at our world. It's a world without peace and it's full of anxiety and restlessness. That's what sin does. It sabotages shalom. And left to ourselves, in our own sinful nature, we're just like Adam. We hate God, we rebel against him, and we're at war with God. This is, this is the nature of us. And if you don't think so, go home this week and study Romans chapter 3, and you'll see that for yourself. Our, our brother Colton preached on one part of that last week. But read the whole chapter, and you can see our sinful nature and the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done to transform us. So let's look through the Old Testament. Let's continue that storyline. We looked at Exodus last week. So what happened was after 40 years where the people of God were disobedient and they didn't trust God to lead them into the promised land, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And when the whole generation had just died off, God then raises up Joshua to lead God's people into Canaan, into the land of promise. So freed from slavery, after 40 years, now they're going in to the promised land. And the whole point of Joshua leading into the land was to give the people rest, to lead God's people essentially back into the promised land, back into the Garden of Eden. And so that's what this is. A promise land is a picture of Eden flowing with milk and honey. There's a language of being brought back in because God's people were exiled out of the garden. They lost shalom. God raises up Yeshua, Joshua, to lead his people back into the garden of Eden to experience rest and shalom. Joshua chapter 1, verse 13. So the very beginning of the book. And this is what God tells Joshua. He says, Remember the word that the Moses, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, As the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So Joshua is saying that God is going to use him to lead God's people to fulfill his promises made to the patriarchs and says that God is going to lead them into the land into rest. That's a very important theme that you see throughout the book of Joshua. And, and the first 12 chapters describe the victories and failures, but mostly victories that God's people had as they were defeating the enemy. They were taking back enemy-occupied land and reclaiming what was theirs. And by the way, any of the peoples that would repent and trust God would not be destroyed. And there are examples. I don't have time to get into it today. But there were people, including one like Rahab, to name one, and Jericho that was not killed. And so God was merciful to those that would repent and trust God. But for the most part, Canaanites were evil and were opposing God. And so this was God's people taking back their land and defeating the enemy. And the first 12 chapters describes that happening. And so then when, when you get to the end of what's called the conquest, what it seems like is like, okay, it's actually happening. God's people are winning. Yeshua, Joshua is leading them to victory. They're defeating the enemy. They're occupying their land, and they're about to experience rest. It, if you read the story, it seems like, okay, shalom is about to be reestablished with God's people. But fast forward to chapter 13 in Joshua. Right after basically 90% of the land had already been occupied. 
This is what it says in Joshua 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old, like God doesn't pull punches. He's like, Josh, you're old, bro. He's like, sorry, this is the truth. You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet, listen to this, very much land to possess. And if you keep reading the next six chapters, it describes how many lands God's people did not occupy. They did not defeat the enemy. They failed. In a very real way, behind the scenes spiritually, the serpent was still very active. The serpent in the garden was still opposing God's people in God's land, and shalom was never established. They never had rest. They never had peace. Joshua 18, verse 3, describes this. Joshua's old, but he's so fiery, and he's unhappy. Joshua 18, 3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord your God your, to your fathers has given to you? He's like, How long will you be lazy? How long will you be apathetic to the things of God? See, what happened here is they thought, you know, we've been fighting long enough. Josh, like, we're tired. We just want to go home and just kind of sit and watch some Netflix and just, you know, just hang out. Like, you expect too much. We've been in the battle long enough. Partial victory is sufficient. Guess what happened? Partial victory will rob you of victory. It robs them. Because if you keep reading in the story, which we'll in a minute, it all goes downhill from there. They failed. They were unable to defeat the serpent and his people. They were unable to establish shalom. No rest. Look to the very end. Joshua 24. End of the book. This is obviously a fly-by overview. Joshua 24, verses 14 through 18, towards the end of the book. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served you on the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us, our our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that he went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Man, words sound so good. But words with no action and with no spine and no follow-through are just empty. And what you see is all these words of, of course God's so amazing, he is saved. Of course we're going to worship God. No, they don't. Not even close. They went to worship other gods instead very quickly. And then Joshua, the great leader, died. So the book ends. In a few chapters or a few verses after that, he dies, no shalom, No rest in the land. They did not worship God. And the book ends. You turn the page. Next book, Judges. We'll pick it up right there. The book of Judges is about 300 years worth of history. And it it describes how there was no rest in the land. It was horrible and dark and wicked. Let's read Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, following the same story. 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. They Now, I know there's kids, but I'm reading the Bible. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. Joshua dies, and now there's this new era where God raises up judges. Now, when we think about a judge, we think of someone in our legal system that's presiding over a court, but that's not what it means in Hebrew. A judge meant a deliverer, like a rescuer. That's just the word. And, and so the word means savior, which is why you see he raised up judges who saved them. So that's what the word means. It means a deliverer. And so the, the book of Judges has cycles and is repeated over and over for three centuries. And it's a seven-part cycle. It begins, one, with Israel does evil. They worship other gods. So evil Israelites. Second, they become oppressed. God allows them to experience evil as discipline for their foolishness, so they're oppressed. Third, Israel cries out for help. Fourth, God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who then, fifth, is, has the Spirit of God upon him. And then he goes, and then six. He frees the people of God. And then seven, the land has rest. And so this is repeated with 15 judges. It's just over cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle of the exact same insanity of disobeying God. They suffer consequences. They cry out. God raises up a deliverer. God sends the Spirit upon that deliverer. They experience freedom, and, they, and then they have rest. They have shalom. But the thing is, it's short-lived because they, they go all over again. So number one, on Israel does evil. It's the same cycle that's repeated over and over and over. And so these deliverers, these judges, bring rest. They bring shalom for a degree, but it's short-lived. It doesn't ever last. Hearts aren't changed. It's more failure and no real rest. And if you want to read the book, I encourage you to, but it's dark. Like, I think it's the darkest, in my opinion. I don't know. Lamentation is pretty dark too. But, but Judges, man, you read chapter 19. I, I won't give you details because there are honestly children in the room. And chapter 19 of Judges is marked with homosexuality, with, with rape. And honestly, like for real, it's like a scene out of Hostel or Saw. Like, you know those, those movies that you shouldn't be watching? That I've never watched. Like, for real, I, 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 can't, I can't watch that. Um, but what happens in Judges 19 is out of a scene from one of those movies. Like, it, dismemberment, it's, it's bad. It's dark. And, and it ends with civil war, with 11 tribes decimating Benjamin, the one tribe. Like, it's, it's bleak. Like, it is so, so bleak. And just, just, let me give you just kind of a, a brief flavor of this in Judges 3, that the first judge, Othniel, um, Judges 3, 9 through 11. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, so now they're in that cycle, the part where they're crying out. The Lord raised up a deliverer from the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord, there's the next part of the cycle, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged, as in judged, he like delivered, that's what it means, Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave him Kishon, Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and over his hand prevailed over, this is a big one, Kesherishathayim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Rest. And you see this again with Ehud, with Shamgar, with Deborah, with Gideon, with Samson. All of these deliverers, these judges, repeated over and over and over and over. And at every single point, what you see is it's just going further down the toilet. 
Like it's just getting worse, man. Like at every, like it cycles, but they're cycling going down. And it's like, first you start at the toilet bowl and then you're going down and then you're down the drain and then you're in the sewer and you're walking and you know what? Like that's what it looks like. That's what judges is, is a going downhill. And, and here's how it ends. The last verse in the book of Judges, 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You you catch that? There's no authority, and everyone does whatever they want to do. You know what that sounds like? It kind of sounds like today. It it's like the Bible's relevant or something. I don't know. Like it's, it's like, like the Bible is inspired by our creator and he knows the reality of human beings. Something written 3,000 years ago is relevant today. No rest. No shalom. Because sin has destroyed it and it robs us rest. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, they all tried to bring shalom, and they all failed. They could not bring rest to the people of God, and when they had rest, it was so brief before the cycle of evil began again. None of these deliverers with a lowercase d, none of these deliverers could ever crush the head of the serpent and lead the people of God back into the Garden of Eden to shalom, to rest, to joy in the presence of God. They could not. They could not. Because we needed a capital D, the deliverer. Who can do that? Question number three. How is God restoring shalom? How is God restoring it? We've seen the history of failure, no rest. Isaiah 9, 6. Common around Christmas time, how he's a wonderful counselor, prince of peace, The language is he is prince of shalom. Jesus is the Messiah who alone can bring shalom. There is none without him. Leviticus chapter 7, this is in Levitical law. It describes one of the sacrifices that people were, were told to bring. It was called the shalom offering, the peace offering. Like That's what it was called. It was a shalom offering. Sometimes it's also called the communion offering. Interesting how the word communion and shalom are interconnected here. So the shalom offering, the communion offering was designed to experience the presence of God. If you go back to reread that in Leviticus 7, you see it was the one and only sacrifice where the worshiper who would come and bring the offering was then allowed from the priest to receive some of that offering back and eat it. Like, that wasn't allowed with any other offering except for the shalom offering, where you as the worshiper could literally share a meal with God. Experiencing communion with God. And the word for that? Peace. Shalom. And that sacrifice was offered over and over and over thousands of years by worshipers in faith that one day Messiah would come, the Prince of Shalom, who would defeat the serpent, crush his head, deliver God's people, lead us back into the land of promise, the Garden of Eden, ultimately is the new earth, where we will enjoy the presence of God, communion with him forever. And so this peace offering pointed to Jesus. 
It pointed to the true shalom that we can only receive through Jesus. Let me read to you out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile on himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making shalom by the blood of his cross. Jesus brings peace because of the blood of his cross. Jesus is shalom. He is reconciling all things, bringing us God's peace through his own blood, paying the price. As we looked at a few weeks ago, walking through that blood path to lead us into the garden where we will have rest. True rest. Experience real shalom. Shalom is salvation. It's redemption from slavery. It's restoration to God's original purpose. It's being reconciled with God, bringing peace only possible because Jesus makes us new. If you're here, and if you don't have peace, then what you need is a new heart to be made new. If you will turn from your sin with all of your heart, trust in Jesus, what will happen is you will be made new and you will experience shalom. You will experience the peace of God that you cannot find anywhere else under the sun. It's only possible through the work of Jesus who gives his people new hearts. Jesus is the final and better peace offering. Jesus is the final and better Joshua. The final Yeshua who is leading us back into the garden where we can experience real joy. And he gives us his spirit so that we can have peace right here and right now. Now, it's not full shalom. That will happen in the new earth. But we have a taste of it right here and right now. And so we are the people of shalom. We are the people of peace who experience it and can then spread it to those marked by anxiety and fear and are enslaved to their sin, and they can have real peace because we have it, and we can live with it. We don't, we don't have to live with anxiety. We don't. We have God's Spirit in us, and God is sovereign. We can walk with confidence and boldness. And, and you know what helps you to be fearless? You know what helps you to be bold? Knowing that God's got this. Knowing that God is sovereign. That gives you peace. When you're not sure if God's in charge, and if you have this, this theology that kind of puts you as sovereign on you name it, and you claim it, and you cancel it, and this whole theology that if you look at it, it really makes you sovereign over God. Man, that's anxiety. That will just, that will devastate you. Because God knows what he's doing, and your job is to rest in him. To have your peace in him. Two closing thoughts, just points to ponder as, as we're dismissed. One is, you can rest. You can. You don't have to live with anxiety and frustration and fear. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Your weary soul can find rest. Are you troubled today? There is rest in Jesus. He is shalom. Last points to ponder as we're dismissed is you can be a peacemaker, a shalom Maker. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He's saying that being a child of God, being transformed by him, it results in you having peace. And then you're so marked by this peace that you can then spread that peace and be a peacemaker. We can. We can spread his shalom. And so are your friendships, are your relationships marked by peace? Is there anyone in your life 
that you're not at peace with. We're called to be peacemakers, to be the ones that spread God's shalom. And so what are you waiting for? God's forgiven you and forgiven that other person. If you've tasted God's mercy, then you're called to then extend mercy. So don't forget the mercy you've received. Let us be those that extend it and that are peacemakers. The purpose of God is shalom. Is your soul at peace? It can be. And I just pray that we're a church so marked by shalom that we become agents of his peace.